Hello, anybody there? Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, good morning. Hi, nice to see you. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for, uh, you know, talking with me so early in the morning. I'm not sure what time it is over there, but it's uh, very much appreciated. I'm in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, so it's 9 a.m. So it's oh, okay, not good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I started to read some of your work and I couldn't remember where you were exactly. I was like, oh, if she's in California, this is going to be an issue. <laughs> it's going to be like six o'clock over there. Yeah, I'm an early riser. So, but yeah, if you're reading it, you're probably thinking, wait, is she in LA? <laughs> but uh, that's that's one of the m- main reasons that I'm so excited to talk to you about uh, life and, and craft in general, because you cover a lot of different forms. And so I find that remarkably exciting. And of course, you know, I'm going to continue to read your latest, your debut, or is it, it's not your debut, is it? It's my debut full length. Ah, okay. okay. Yeah, I had a chapbook out by Galileo Press in 2021, but okay. yeah. Oh man, there's so much I need to talk to you about because I'm, I want to talk <laughs> about that collection as well, the, the chapbook. Before we get into the works, I wanted to ask you about sort of how you got into the arts, how you started this creative journey, and then eventually your career, which is a multifaceted one as well. And oh, hi, Kat. Just wanted to say hi. I know. They're, so <laughs> They're the best. Aww, the best co-writers. <laughs> yes, they are. So would you mind giving me the, the lowdown on how you got into the arts, if there was such a thing back in the day when you were younger? How did that start for you? Yeah. Um, I, so I don't remember when I started writing. I just know that I was writing and my most vivid memory of writing as a kid was my grandparents had this lake house or at a lake where we used to go camping. They eventually retired and bought a lake house and I got a, um, an electric typewriter for, I think my birthday or something. I spent, instead of, you know, spending a lot of it swimming in the lake, I spent a lot of it with this electric typewriter and my whiteout, and my correction tape. And um, <laughs> my mom worked at a bookstore when I was a kid. Oh. She worked at a couple of them. Um, this was when I was living in the Bay Area in California, in Cupertino. And she worked at one of the first Barnes and Nobles there doing events coordinating. And um, she worked at a clean, well-lighted place for books. And I vividly remember going to a lot of events as a kid and getting signed copies of everything from Lewis Sacker's Wayside, uh, Sideways Stories from Wayside School. And um, so I was always reading. And uh, yeah, so I, I really got into, you know, this is going to be like classic 90s kid, R.L. Stein and <laughs> Diana Hall and Christopher Pike. And so I was like mostly writing horror stuff when I was a kid, mm. um, just not thinking about craft reform, just like the excitement of creating. So I did that. And then in high school, I ended up um, my junior and senior year, they had film classes mm. and got, that's when I got into film. And so, you know, my love of storytelling took on the visual element. And from there, you know, yeah, when you yeah, film you yeah. <laughs> so a lot of it, I don't know. I think a lot of it was from reading as a kid and growing up in bookstores. Yeah. So uh, what, what kind of work were you doing when you were studying a film or, or when you first started getting into that, was it still sort of on the horror angle or were you exploring a lot of different things at that time? Um, yeah. So I was pretty angsty in the, you know, it was late nineties, early nineties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, I mean, I write about it a lot, but my, my parents split up, my mom's an addict, mm. um, left. And so I kind of grew up with, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a nineties thing, but I grew up among friends, just kind of raised in like a village of friends and friends, parents type of setting. Yeah. And so that impacted a lot of, I, I started doing this, like, I hate to say Larry Clark, but like Larry Clark, like cinema verite, like I would just take my camera and I would just mm. go and film everything because I felt like, I felt like there was something in the material just around me and the people I hung out with. Yeah. So it wasn't so much horror, but it was very much like, uh, like art, not art brute, but like kind of like borderline in a way, just sort of like, you know, experiencing life and sharing it in that, in that fashion. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And it didn't have any sort of narrative shape, really. I mean, the projects I did, but like a lot of it was just trying to figure out the zeitgeist and what was going on. Yeah. What kind of movies were you watching at the time or, or kind of bits of art that were influencing you at that age? Yeah. So in high school, I hate to admit I was a huge Tarantino fan. Um, I was really into just the fractured storytelling mm-hmm. of his earlier work. Um, and I would say I was, I would go to the indie theater. My, my friends and I would drive down to La Jolla to the indie theater. Like when you used to have to wait for a movie to come out and drive down and see it. <laughs> and Terry Zweigoff's ghost world, the adaptation of Daniel Close, um, graphic novel. Like that was one of the first films that I watched where I'm like, yes, I want to make a film mm. because I just loved the way it looked. I loved the characters. Um, and you know, it had that literary feel to it because it was adapted from close. But yeah, I was kind of just trying to watch and see anything that, that I could get down to see at the indie theaters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems that you made a quite a, a bit of inroads in your professional career as a, as a film artist, a, a creative working in that. Um, how was that experience compared to your writing and what kind of gratification would you say you got from being in that career versus the writing work that you've done now in recent years? Yeah. So I'll start just really quickly to talk about film school. I went to the university of Southern California and, you know, it was a very elite program and it was very much like you're here to make art. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were a lot of talented people and, and we did, we made art and then we graduated and, um, Working in production like I did, I immediately went into working in production, which is on set Mm. and is a very different kind of creative. It's a troubleshooting, problem-solving creative. Mm. But I think it was really important for me to work in production. Um, I became an assistant director, and a lot of it was logistics, endless 20-something hour days with very short turnarounds and... um, I burn out really quickly. I did something close to 6,000 hours on set in a really short period of time. And I ended up, (laughs) yeah. Um, And I ended up moving into, I I wanted to get back to writing. And so that's when I went to Warner Brothers and I got the job um, as assistant to the executive producers at Two and a Half Men and Big Bang Theory. Mm. Um, Because I talked to Chuck Lorre, who I've known since I was like, since I met my best friend in high school. (laughs) In middle school, and um, he knew my intent that I wanted to write. And I didn't necessarily want to write sitcoms, but I wanted to just anywhere I wanted to write. And a lot of things happened while I was at Warner Brothers. Um, there was the 2007 writer's strike, um, which shut down everything, but also just the complete uh, abuse of power, which mm-hmm. I write a lot about, um, that was there. So the artistic experience for me at that level was the antithesis of, of the, the, the act of creation that I feel at the level of writing. Um, I do produce now and, and, you know, make short films and have a lot more creative involvement, but I think working in prime time on multi-million dollar shows that are well-oiled machines Mm -hmm. that, you know, have, the two act structure with the specific, you know, beats, like every week is the same thing. It's situational. Right. Um, that it was very much like this wake up call of, Oh, this is not what mm. I want to make. I want and that's not to like diss anybody who in, enjoys those things, but I, I got nothing out of it. I lost everything from it mm. almost. So. Mm. Yeah. And it seems like you made, you made the right call to, to move away to something that allowed you that sort of creative expression on a constant, because it does seem like the higher up you get, you know, into those levels, the less risk can be taken. Because as you said, it's a business enterprise. It is a machine that can operate with or without you. And it just keeps going and going. Um, and I think that, Oh, sorry. And it's run by, you know, powerful, abusive white men who want to write these boring cishet white, you know, yeah. storylines yeah. that are so toxic. And so anyway, in a way it was kind of like voyeurism being there, but, but yeah, anyway, but not, but not participating. Yeah, no, but I think that's a really great point because it is a major theme that you want to talk about and that you want to 
give access to um, newer voices or voices that are often disenfranchised and don't really have a chance to get to that. But you feel like that was the core beginning of that mission for you right around that time? I think it was. Yeah, it was because I got to see what the cost really was of making shows that I, I, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so I got to ask you this, we're going to kind of go a little bit to a different direction, but you're also an educator. Do you think that it's, it's very important to talk to your students about this sort of environment? And how do you think that younger filmmakers and creatives can prepare to go into that sort of situation now with that information that you know? Yeah, that's exactly what my goal was in moving into teaching film in particular, because I've taught writing for the last 10 years. Um, But in teaching film production, which is what I do, I'm very transparent with the students about the circumstances. Um, And I'm also clear to say that my experience is not representative of all experiences. I've worked on great shows, Mm -hmm. features, um, but, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time addressing their storytelling um, tendencies that they have. Um, Because, you know, we, when we experiment with something new and a lot of students experimenting with screenwriting or writing for the screen, um, we, we do a lot of imitation. Imitation is one form of learning. And oftentimes with that imitation comes these deeply embedded problematic narratives that we need to move away from. And a lot of them are the narratives that exist in the actual work environment. Mm. Um, so much, so much emotional and sexual abuse from all genders um, and all levels, you know. And so I, I try to teach them the importance of having empathy. I actually just finished teaching um, my intermediate production class last week. And instead of having the end of the year celebratory, you guys did a great job. I had to sit down and have a conversation with them about how they needed to exercise humility and how they needed to stop seeing their peers as competitors. Mm. Um, And they weren't very happy about that, you know, being called out on it because they came in with this idea of I need to be the best. And the thing is, is it's collaborative, but you know, it's, it's interesting to be in a collaborative space where everybody's trying to just eat everybody else. It's like this very primal yeah, so I spend a lot of time talking about that. No, it's wonderful to hear you say that because in a lot of our institutions, and I remember, you know, in my time as a theater student, you know, it's a similar environment where it's dog eat dog, you got to get the audition or you got to have the best script or you got to do this or that. And I find that it's so rare, and I don't know why it's so rare in a field that needs and demands that collaboration where we're just pitted against each other to to hunt for scraps it doesn't make any sense to me and so that's really exciting that you lead that on with collaboration in a sense of collective purpose that is so often missing in in the creative arts it's pretty exciting to see now if we could just talk about uh the year of the monster you know obviously i got to read a couple of pages of it last night and i was just so excited because screenwriting is such a beautiful form <laughs> it, it is frenetic it is immediate it is in your face it's so punchy and beautiful and it seems like you've taken a lot of that energy and it's made its way into this prose hybrid project could you tell me a bit about how this project comes to be before we move on to the other ones and can you tell me about the choices that that were made with this with this work and how you found its shape given that it's borrowing from a couple of different forms Yeah. So the year of the monster took from inception to publication about 14 years. And I didn't know that I was writing it when I was writing it because I was in graduate school and I was, I was writing short stories, but I was like, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to write a novel. And, um, I did spend a lot of time writing a novel. I finished, you know, the first half of a novel for my thesis And then I graduated and I started teaching. We moved here back to Pennsylvania and I was so hyper-focused on this novel and I finished it and I sent it out and I got some agent uh, interest. And then I just, um, some life things were going on with me and I, and I dropped it and I ended up distilling the novel down to a single story, Mm. which is the title story in the year of the monster. Um, 
And when I looked at it distilled down to a single story, I recognized the themes in a lot of the other pieces and this concept of monstrosity, which I used to teach a literature class um, about the monster. And I started picking through the pieces of my work about monstrosity. It was really kind of deep in, um, I was getting sober at the time too. So I was like in this very like hyper aware state of yeah. like trying to correct wrongs, et cetera. And like self, self, um, you know, self-exploration. And so I put the book together. There were some pieces that I ended up taking out, but I couldn't leave out film because so much of my idea of the human monster comes from the way that it's portrayed in film. Hmm. And for me, film and the film industry are inseparable because I've worked in it. And so that's where, when I started writing and the pieces in monster that are written in screenplay hybrid format were originally published in fiction international as a triptych. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. what it was is a lot of it was trying to, you know, fictionalize some things that I had experienced. And for me, the content dictated that form of screenplay. And so then I started playing with it and, um, you know, sprinkled it throughout the book. It's mostly in the second third of the book. But um, for me, the stories that don't involve film still speak to those those uh, passage or those dispatches that have the screenplay format in them. Mm. And yeah, I just absolutely love the screenplay format. I fall into it really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I used it for you know my next book. But so that book went through like a, some significant changes when it was under contract with unsolicited for about two and a half years. Mm-hmm. It got accepted right the month before the pandemic started. <laughs> and then I remember thinking, oh my God, can I wait two and a half years to put this book out? Because it's already been so long. Wow. And it actually ended up having, in my mind, more relevance for me after the fact of like, what do we do, you know, when faced with the potential, you know, end of times or, you know, whatever. So. Yeah, it seemed like it was fated to wait out just a little bit longer to to add another layer to the theme, to add a, a little bit more uh, expression there. Uh, with a project that has been lingering so long, do you f- did you feel like it would ever get made? Was there a dark moment or, or just a, um, did you ever feel like it was going to be scrapped? Yeah, yeah, I did. Especially right at the end of my drinking, everything just felt like I couldn't finish anything. And no matter how hard I tried to finish a book, whether it was the novel or a collection. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I, when I sent it out initially as a collection, I sent it to very specific presses um, and it didn't go through too many rejections. But I think that there was a part of me that's like, I got to finish something like, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of writers have that feeling of this is never going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) It's never going to happen. But I didn't even really write or anything my first year of sobriety. So I think maybe that was really helpful for me to get a reset. Mm. Well, it's, it's good to hear. I mean, one of the, uh, the things that I love about talking to, to folks is to share that collective, uh, grief of, of not knowing. Right. And, uh, remind folks, everything's going to be okay. As long as you keep putting pen to paper. Now, what has the reception been like for the work? I know it's only, it came out in September, right? So it, it hasn't been uh, very long, but what kind of feedback have you received on the work? Um, I've mostly received positive feedback. It's interesting to know who's favorite, who, what the favorite stories are for certain people. Hmm. Um, and it's always surprising to me. I, I spoke to a woman, uh, a friend of mine who teaches in San Diego Grossmont College, and she was saying how much she liked um, There Are No Secrets in the Constellations, which was the hardest piece for me to, to, to publish before the book came out. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't care if anybody doesn't like this story. It needs to be in here. And nobody ever really said anything about it. So I was <laughs> really surprised. But um, I've also had uh, some... I think I read like an Amazon review that was also Goodreads where somebody said something along the lines of you need to sit down and read it all in one sitting for it to feel like it's keeping momentum. So yeah. um, content wise, I think a lot of people are more interested in the kinds of, in the stories that address working in the industry because it's this sort of like demystifying, you know, of the process. And it's not like a TV show that's made 
you know, in order to reveal something, it, it feels it feels different when it's in writing than when it's in on a show. Uh-huh. What have you learned about the work now that it's come out, or do you see it in a different light? Is there something that you wish you would have done differently, or or how do you feel on the work itself? The book is exactly what I wanted it to be, and so it taught me that patience is important. Unsolicited press is very very detail oriented in their editorial schedule. And they do a lot to support their authors. They nominate for awards. They go, you know, to festivals. They send the book out to stores, obviously. But um, in looking back at what I would do differently, um, not not much because I, I, I was so lucky to get the readers that I got, um, the blurbs, and um, it really is representative of a huge part of my life creatively. Like there are definitely stories that I look at and my style is much different now. Um, That was what was interesting in editing the book and going through it because I was putting out, I ended up putting out a chat book while I was, that book was under contract. And in working with this other editor, Barrett Warner at at Galileo Press, I, I, he helped me identify some things in my writing, but I went back to Monster and went through and did this edit of, style, not to eliminate things, but to really just kind of chisel it down to what I wanted. So I wouldn't necessarily do anything different with, with that book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's wonderful to hear because it is sort of a, one of those things where one project sort of leapfrogs you into the next and there's learning experiences from all of these, but let's segue for a moment because when I saw in your bio, these words, and I might add, these are my favorite words in the entire world hybrid chapbook slash concept album. <laughs> I said, this is, this sounds like the coolest thing ever. I need to know how this happened and, and sort of the, the impetus to create something like this. Um, it really, uh, drew my attention. Well, the concept album part was from my editor, Barrett Warner, because he heard the music in it. And so then it became formatted like and I know people can't see this, but I'll show you, but it's like a CD cover that oh. has a track thing on the front. So it's like a very nineties inspired, you know, it has like the, the, the lone woman in the desert on the back <laughs> of it. It reminded me of kind of the you ought to know music video for yeah. Atlanta. Tourette. But um, yeah, when I was with monster, when I was going through making edits and I was pulling stories out that didn't fit the theme or I was organizing, I ended up with this, collection of, of hybrid pieces, prose poetry, some flash, some stories, some actual poetry that all connected on the idea of identity and mothers and daughters and sort of what's handed down to us and what we accept, what we reject, what becomes problematic. And a lot of it's like fairy tale oriented. Mm-hmm. And so um, Galileo Press ended up taking that um, and, re- and really sitting down and just kind of forming it into this playlist of, <laughs> of different stories of these women and non-binary characters who are trying to live and, tr- and trying to break out of this, of, of the identity that's been handed down to them. Hmm. So was there, was there a challenge in particular there that you, that you experienced while assembling this, or was there one problem piece that you just weren't able to to overcome and how were you able to solve that problem there wasn't so much a piece but i think the the part of um the process of a book that comes after the book is done that is has been really important to me is working with the right editor um and trusting the process i think it's easy to be married to your ideas and your style and to reject somebody else's suggestions. Um, you have to know your reader. So Barrett like lived in that book and mm-hmm. he, he really understood what I was trying to do. I, it wasn't to say like there weren't words that I fought for when we were in the editing process, but um, he really believed so much in the book and, and wanted it to be beautiful. I think, I think there are, there are a lot of presses out there that have editors with good intentions, but it could just be like wanting to put out the book. And for me, it's important to have an editor who has an experience with the book and the book becomes an experience for them. And then they're invested in it um, aesthetically. And he, he's a poet too. 
Um, and you know, so for me, like that experience, like he would send me handwritten edits to over like two day mail, you know, <laughs> and we would go over them on the phone. Like he was just very old school and yeah. he would fight for Tara, Tara, you start all these sentences with when, <laughs> which removes us from the present. So think of it this way, instead of <laughs> when I become a woman, just I become a woman or something like that. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God using these prepositions everywhere. So, <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful to hear because, you know, when somebody takes that much care, right, they want you to have the information that's still handwritten. It's still very old school. I think there's something that we're missing out on uh, in that way. But how does one go about finding somebody like that, um, especially for folks who may not be as, as connected into the, the industry or publishing or not have any familiarity? How do you go about looking? Um, because I think that might be, um, that might be an issue for some folks who again, might be on the fringes or might not be familiar with this world. Yeah. A lot of it's reading. I, you know, free state review is the magazine arm of Galileo press. And I had read a couple issues of free, free state review. And then I saw that they were putting out prose chat books. And so I ordered one by Jessica Bonder and, um, and I loved it. I, I really loved just the, I don't know, for me, it was like painting with light. I think it's actually called light and bell. Mm-hmm. And I liked it. And then I saw that they had an, you know, an open reading period coming up. And um, I read some other stuff from them too. And I liked that they published poetry as well because the hybrid chat book had poetry in it. So for me, it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading and seeing what's reviewed also in literary magazines and yeah, chat books are not a lucrative business, right? <laughs> like chat books are, you know, they're limited run. I think we, 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 we printed 300 copies of, of blood history sold almost all of them, but um, yeah, it's, so my suggestion is really just find reading and then finding community during COVID. I, I know I'm going to be that person um, during COVID. I, I really got into the literary Twitter community and which <laughs> have its problems too, but <laughs> I mean, that's where I in, encountered you. Exactly, um, so it's, exactly. it's wonderful, <laughs> but it's where I find, I've found some of the best work to read and magazines. And for me, it's not about for, for the work that I've created. It's not about making a bestseller list. I have not created a I, I, I don't like blood history is obviously a chat book, not going to be on the best list, but the connections I've made with people who've read it, you know, the MFA program at San Diego state had me for the living writer series and the students had to read blood histories. And I remember several students saying certain things, but this one young, younger man, like nearly crying and saying about this one poem about being the child with broken geometry. And he's mm-hmm. like, this poem's and I just felt less alone. And I'm like, you could write the book just for that one person to yeah. feel less yeah. alone. So yeah, reading, be you know, getting outside of your comfort zone and 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 reading stuff that maybe you wouldn't necessarily find on the Barnes and Noble bookshelf. It's incredible to Which hear. is hard. Yeah, very, very hard. Um, but I think a lot of us turned to Twitter and found that it was a more receptive community than than we otherwise would have thought um it definitely in the since the pandemic it's changed my mind but these are these are phenomenal uh tidbits to take away especially for folks who are interested in finding quality of life in the work that they do rather than slave away for something that might be unattainable or you know um i guess reserved for very few people who are uh in the echelons of something but do you feel like it's easier now for you to, to be at peace having done all of this work in the industry and, and having lived it and said, that's not for me. Is that what everyone needs to do to try it out and, and then say, if this isn't for you, don't stay in the machine, move out. Do you mean the film industry? Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it seems like you, you went, sorry, I, I was thinking of, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've lived a lot of life. You've had a lot of experiences and it feels like the only way to to get to where you're at with that level of peace and and confidence in yourself is to just go head first into the hardest things possible. 
This is probably my best year creatively. So it's really easy for me to feel at peace right now. Mm. Um, you know, my book came out, it was received well. I get to travel for a mini book tour. I get to do podcasts with people like you. I get to do all this fun stuff. So yeah, it's, you know, I feel like, oh, everything was a good decision. It was a great decision to move out of that, you know, crappy little apartment on Franklin Hill and uh, Sunset Junction. Um, but I, I know just for me, I mean, there's, it's a place, uh, there are people where that is their place. And I hope they go and they change it from the inside out. For, for me, I do feel like it was the right decision. I do feel more at peace. Um I feel like I have a purpose in what I'm teaching now. And that, and that may change too. You know, I think being open to not knowing what's going to happen and not having this tunnel vision trajectory that I had for so long of, I'm going to go to the best film school in the world, check that box. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to work on the number one television show in primetime in 2008, check that box. And it was the boxes that were checked, but the internal boxes, (laughs) we're not being checked, you know? So I have a lot of students who will graduate and say like, yeah, I got this great film gig and it looks great on paper, but I just don't like it. Or, you know, so there's, there's a lot of disillusionment that has to happen. The demystifying for me. Um, and also recognizing I I moved out of LA like quite a while ago and I've visited since then. I, I flew out to do a web series, you know, to watch a standup, um, routine that was supposed to be turned into a web series. And I did go and produce this web series in 2019 Mm. and that I will probably write about at another time. (laughs) Um, So much, so much interesting stuff with that. And it didn't come to fruition because of a lot of the same type of personality things that I had been there before. Um, But yeah, I do feel a lot more at peace in doing what I'm doing and, you know, yeah, once a book comes out too, you do feel a little bit like, okay, it did happen. Um, but I'm just consistently looking at like, I'm in the throes of like, what do I want to do now? Like, what do I want to yeah. read now? And what, what do I want to experience now? What do I want to write about? There's a, a beautiful sense of freedom there that maybe you wouldn't have had otherwise um, had you stayed in certain places. But I don't want to take up too much of your time. I just got a couple more, but I. Uh, I am very interested to hear about your latest book, which is coming out here in 2023. Can you tell me a bit about what it's about and, uh, and what are we looking forward to when we get that book? Yes. So they more than burned, uh, is coming out from ELJ editions, March 15th. It was originally slated for August, 2023, but they had an opening in the catalog. So we pulled it up. And it's a hybrid collection, very heavy on the, on the screenplay, script writing, script documents, <laughs> um, hybrid. <laughs> so it is kind of the culmination of a very long time of me reflecting back on being a teenager during the turn of the millennium, Y2K, 9-11, and um, I had this, so just to kind of like say generally, like what inspired it first is I, I have these tapes that when I was, you know, when I was in high school, I was in, in a, in a film class and I was filming everything like we were talking about earlier. And then after the day after nine 11, I went to this house that we used to party at called yellow house. And I vaguely remember that maybe an adult owned that house, but most of us were just kids hanging out. It was like our, it was our party house. And I went there and I just started interviewing everybody there. And I was interviewing people for days afterwards. And one of our friends had enlisted in the army like two weeks before. And a week after 9-11, he was getting ready to go boot camp. And I filmed that and I interviewed him. Um, And so I had all these tapes and I found them after moving. I hadn't looked at them in like 10 years. And a few summers ago during COVID when there was nothing to do, I was digitizing them and in digitizing them, I recognized that I had all of these other narratives that I'd had written pieces of mm. that were connecting back to the footage. And so, you know, 
I was thinking, God, it's been almost 20, it's been 20 years. And it feels like, I feel that sea change, that zeitgeist shift. Mm -hmm. And so basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to combine the argument that it's difficult to to translate memory into film and to see it in film and onto paper. And what would a documentarian do with all this archival footage and these pages? And that was the impetus for for these interconnected stories is that there's a woman who's a documentarian and she comes across these tapes and she makes a short film at a festival that goes to festival. And then the networks want to buy it and they want her to make this feature length blockbuster documentary about, you know, the post nine 11, uh, you know, late gen X zeitgeist and what happened. And it ends up, you know, being a book about the process and trying to, maintain your integrity, your artistic integrity. Mm-hmm. And throughout the 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 different braids, because it's a braided narrative, are they can they include like film artifacts and documents and short stories that feel like archives. And yeah, so the book and They More Than Burn comes from this flash that I that's in the book that's a, a question and answer that was originally titled Flashover and appeared in still the journal and was in the Wigleaf top 50 in 2021. Mm. And um, they're talking about, you know, the, the twin towers and how hot it needed, you know, cause all the conspiracy theories about yeah. the twin towers were hot enough to burn steel. And so at one point the character says they more than burned and that's how it became mm. the title. It really becomes the characters and that all encompass this time and space. Yeah. And how timely this is. I mean, it is a very personal narrative and, you're using a lot of the the ideas of of the film industry to sort of subvert them in a way. It's that's what it sounds like. But how timely to get a story about such a tragic event, given that it feels like it, we're so removed from it now, and people are forgetting, and people don't really understand the gravity of how that changed our landscape. You know, uh, can you tell me a bit about what was there a political motivation for you to speak up on this and say, this is kind of where it all started. If you look back to nine 11, did you feel that like that was sort of a, an energy that you needed to follow as well? Yeah, that came after. So it's a fiction, but it's based on obviously these tapes and it came after a lot of the people I grew up with starting to die from drug addiction, overdose and um, going to war and not coming back or going to the war and coming back and still being there. So I fictionalized it, but a a lot of it, you know, there is this through line of PTSD from one of the characters Mm -hmm. who I've obsessively Mm -hmm. written about in other books. Like he appears in Armistice Mm -hmm. in um, the monster. His name's Joe. He's a real person, but he's, you know, inspired and he knows I've been writing about him too. And he's the one who went off you know, who had enlisted in the army. He was an anarchist actually who enlisted in the army he had nothing else to do. Wow. And then he came back, but he didn't really come back, you know? And a yeah. lot of it is just like, never really go back, but it definitely started to become this political, especially in the, in, in the, 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 the dominant narrative that's braided throughout with the, um, with the producer and the documentarian where it's just so much about, creating a cinematic piece as opposed to a humanized piece. And that's not to say that cinematic is separated from the human, but it is our culture. I mean, our artists is so commodified, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, yeah, unless, I mean, with nine 11 for you and me, because I don't know how old you are, but I was there. Yeah. I I remember. (laughs) (laughs) But that was this, the shift. You know, that was the shift. And I was 17 and mm-hmm. I remember watching it on TV while I was getting ready for school. I was like looking in my mirror in my closet, putting mm-hmm. on mascara and I see this plane yeah. um, and everything yeah. changed. Yeah. And then people, you know, went away and did come back. So I definitely feel like um, it went from the personal to become the political. I very rarely like go specifically for political, cultural commentary, and then come back to the personal, the personal usually signals that. Wow. 
And I'm going to be really excited to check that out when it comes out. It marks a time that I'm that I remember very well. But I also think that you're doing something so interesting that you're looking at at where you come from. Like you know, obviously, like a lot of writers, you know, we all do this. But uh, you you let your world be the thing that it is. You know, without getting transformed too much. And I think that's such like beautiful inspiration for a lot of people to you don't have to manufacture a lot because it's there already as, as the starting point for what you want to do. Um, but I want to ask you if, um, there is, there is a sense that you've, you've dug up the well entirely of where you come from. Is that something that you, that you ever fear, or is that something that you feel like you're redoing your own stories again and again? Um, how do you overcome that? Or is it something that's a non-issue? That's a really great question because I was thinking about that a couple of days ago about where am I going to go from here? You know, I went from having no books out to then it, it it's everything is how it seems because the people are like, Oh my God, you have another book coming out. And I'm like, well, it was already in process. Once this comes out March, I literally have nothing in my cupboard, like nothing. I, I have ideas of some uh, essay collections I'd like to write, mm. but but yeah, I I think this book was is something that's just been something that I've needed to 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 write, and it's out now, and I, I it's done. Like I don't think that I'm gonna write about these characters again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if the film industry is ever gonna not be a character in my stories. Um, I write a lot about addiction, just being, you know, sober and they more than burn has a huge recovery narrative in it. And so, um, you know, I, I think like that, well, you know, that's, it's, it's a foundation. I have these, my place, my perspective on place continues to change. Yeah. So I think I've finished with this book a lot of the material will be laid to rest. I don't really, really like to repeat myself, but yeah, I think it's laid to rest. I don't know what's going to happen now, (laughs) (laughs) which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's again, diving into the unknown, you know, that big cliff that we're all, we're all afraid of, but where the exciting stuff happens. Do you feel like you might be exploring other forms in the future or mediums? I should say like, uh, doing audio work or doing, you know, uh, a variety of other things. Is that, is that something that crosses your mind? Well, sound design is something that I love and was my, my area of specialization in college. And I teach advanced sound design. I'd love to do more with the sound medium. Um, I'm about, I'm, (laughs) I'm about to make my book trailer for this book soon, which I am I don't know. I like m- making book trailers. I didn't get to make one for a year of the monster because I had COVID and I had a oh. lot of complications for a couple of months leading up to it. Oh shoot. Yeah. But, um, I have some short films that I'm going to be producing over the next couple of years to, um, one as a part of my work workload reallocation at the university, but also it's, it's, you know, I'm actually adapting two of my stories. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I do see, you know, continuing working as a creative in the visual medium and yeah, working in the the I would love to do some more audio work. But yeah, I mean I I like to work in in visual and written and that's why sometimes the two merge even though some people may have their own opinions about cinematic writing and yeah. not liking cinematic <laughs> writing. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I, I read Recently on Twitter, somebody who will not be named said that their goal in their next workshop that they're speaking at is to destroy the notion of cinematic writing. And I said, wow, like really must. What does that be on mean? A mission. <laughs> what does I that even mean? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, yeah, let people write what they want to write. <laughs> That's right. Read That's what you right. want to read. Yeah. So two more to be mindful of your time here. Um, so. Lastly here, what do you think makes you efficient when you write in this day and age? Now that you, you're, you're an educator full-time, I imagine you're doing a lot of that work and that's not easy work. It uses up a lot of your mental, you know, wavelength. How do you do it? How, how does writing work for you, uh, to get stuff done? Yeah. So the first thing I did was stopped drinking because I couldn't get anything done. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's not to tell everybody to stop drinking. <laughs> if you're an alcoholic, you should stop drinking. <laughs> you might want to consider it. I did not finish anything. I would I would sit down with this whole ritual of like I'd have a little, you know, Jaeger pint in my desk and I would drink it. And it just got to the point where I would sit down, I'd write and I would black out and I'd wake up and I would it'd be completely incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in addition to just having a lot of other issues. But so I have two kids. I have a 10 year old and an eight year old. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I like to be present for them. So what I do when I'm in the throes of writing something or on a project, I write from four to 6am. So I wake up very early. Um, my cats love it. <laughs> and I do what I can in that time. I'm kind of juggling stuff right now, like finishing proofs. And I, I'm lucky to have a partner who is supportive and a participant and allows me to leave. But yeah, I have to set boundaries. Um, I tell my students, I don't answer. I I don't check my email after 5 p.m. on weekdays. Mm -hmm. um, Unless I, you know, unless we have like some big, if they're on a film shoot, they'll have my phone number. They can call me. But I really had to set boundaries because I didn't used to have those mm-hmm. and I would grade it. I would check email all hours of the day. So I also tell them I respect their time and boundaries. So, yeah, I, I don't even forward my work email to my phone. My husband does. A lot of people I know do. But I don't do that because I can't. And I know that's not possible for everybody. But for me, I can't have that there. See, I could, I'll just get distracted by it. Um, so to get the work done for me, I know my most creative time of day is 4am. I know that's not the time for a lot of other people, but if I were to wait till the end of the day, I would never write anything Mm. because I would be done teaching, you know, having dinner with my family, being present with my kids. I would be completely sapped of energy. Mm -hmm. So if my writing is really important to me that day, then I get up at six and I do it. I mean, at four and I do it. That, what would you say to, to those who don't feel like they have a pathway to, to a career? Um, because uh, obviously I know that we, we have to redefine career. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter if you get to the upper echelons of, of any industry, but, um, what would you say to somebody who feels hopeless in, in not being able to express their creative spirit? You know, the opposite of fear is faith. <laughs> so I think hopelessness comes from fear and it's it's hard because i think there's intellectual acceptance and emotional acceptance and while intellectually we can accept yes anything can happen i can meet you know i could have a chance meeting with an editor or a producer or something like that emotionally how do we get through the day-to-day emotionally and i think hopelessness if it's a an enduring feeling um really getting to what the thing under the thing is and what for like, for me in my moments of, of hopelessness, I think a lot of it was just a fear that I wasn't being authentic or that I was lonely. Um, Cause for me, writing is very much like a it's collaborative, it's community building um, it's connection. There's, I can't, I think it was a lit hub article that Melissa Phoebos wrote a month or two ago, but she was talking about silencing the critics and writing just for those people who need your work and not thinking about, Oh, someone's going to dismiss this. For instance, the cinematic writing, Oh, it's cinematic writing. <laughs> such and such big writer hates cinematic writing, but there are people who need your work. Like that one student who read blood histories, he, he told me he needed that and I don't know who's going to need it. I know that I need it. So if, if, if I'm writing something and it fills me with hope when I look at it, or it makes me feel like I've articulated some aspect of the human condition. Um, I have to be able to rest easy in that. I, I don't know how to alleviate the pain for people going through hopelessness other than recognizing each day is a new day. And, um, Things are in constant flux. And the thing that I would do, though, is get a community. I have some close writer friends that I've met through Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm meeting one of them in Las Vegas uh, on Thursday. My family's going to Las Vegas for my husband's 50th. And Mm. she and I have been messaging 
through through Twitter and we're going to meet in person on Thursday. And, oh, cool. you know, finding other writers, it can be very hard to find other writers if you don't have a connection, but even just people who are your readers and understand what you're trying to do. Even if you're just reading poetry with somebody in a backyard, you know, like this poet writer group that I was in and I was the only fiction writer and they were all posts. Just sitting there though, gave me hope that other people are there trying to make sense of this crazy existence on this planet. Keep trying. <laughs> Amazing and a beautiful note to end on. So um, Tara, I want to thank you for your time, for sharing so much about your experience and how to overcome uh, so much. But more importantly, I, I want to thank you for reminding us to, to go our own way to live in the hybrids, to to do something that is not necessarily in one lane or another, to just be true and honest. It's remarkably inspiring. And uh, I really want to thank you for your time. It's been awesome. Oh, Jaime, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm humbled. <laughs> and you know, next time we'll talk about Dali, because I know you got a Dali in the in the back there. Uh, and uh, maybe yeah. we'll <laughs> we'll we'll talk about parenting too because I got a nine year old so you, you you got you're one year before me and one year after me so if you got any advice yeah. we'll, we'll chat about that. We're <laughs> such fun here. I don't know. It's fun. It's crazy, but it's fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But uh, I wish you the best on the next book. Um, please let me know if you ever want to chat next year in 2023. I'll be around because we just scratched yeah. the surface with really good guests like you. It's very difficult. Oh, thank you. No, this is so great. Thank you so much for all that you do. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, I'll bug you on the internet here in a little bit. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Yeah, have a great day. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.